Welcome to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have real, honest, smart, and sometimes even hilarious conversations about co-parenting, separation, and divorce, and all that goes along with that. I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, Certified Life and Relationship Coach, and Happily Divorced Mom, who helps women decide if they should stay in or leave their marriages, and then guides them through the process one step at a time. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a fantastic summer. Thank you for hanging in with me last month while I went on vacation with my son. We spent two weeks in New York, and it was really lovely. We spent a week in East Hampton with my dad, which was super special, and then we spent a week in the city, which was amazing and also totally fucking exhausting. (laughs) So many of you know that I grew up in New York City, and while I've taken my son back there over the years, this was the first year that I think he really got it. Like, he's old enough now that we were able to do a ton of stuff that was super fun for both of us, and it was really bonding for us. So my heart is, like, super full. Um, And also, that city is really fucking exhausting. And every time I go back, I'm totally shocked that I spent 30 years enduring that level of intensity. Holy shit. So for those of you still there, I commend you. The older I get, the harder it feels to spend significant time there. I just feel like I am too old for that. Anyway, we had fun. My son loved it. I loved showing him really what I felt like is my city. And it was really, really special for us. So two weeks ago, my producer, who is also literally my lifesaver, Darlene, put out a repeat of my most popular episode to date, which is an amazing conversation I had with my friend, Quentin Hafner. So I hope you were able to revisit that episode. And thank you for tuning in again today for today's all new episode. Uh, Before we get to that, I just want to plug my Facebook group once again. This is for women only. Sorry, dudes. Um, And it is really a truly special community. We're over 400 strong at this point. And unlike a lot of divorce or mom groups on the internet, this group is full of nothing but love, support, and women working hard to understand their pasts and heal themselves without blame or toxicity. It's truly beautiful to witness. I'm really active in there. So if you want more of me, and if you want to gather in community with some beautiful and amazing women, you'll find a link to join the group in the show notes. This is a group that's for women who are either trying to decide whether to stay or go, or women who are going through divorce. So join us. It's awesome. Okay, so on to today's episode. Today I have with me Duena Welch. Duena is the original Love Factually author and coach known for using social science to solve real-life relationship issues. Following her PhD in psychology, she taught at universities in Florida, California, and Texas across 20 years. She's the author of the original Love Factually book series worldwide and contributes to Psychology Today, eHarmony, and others. All of her books rely on science rather than opinion to help men and women find and keep the right partner. I love Duena's scientific approach because, as you probably know, I am a total geek when it comes to the science of communication and relationships, and that's basically Duena's entire wheelhouse. So 
Without further ado, here is my conversation with Duena Welch. Duena, thank you so much for being here and for coming to share your incredible, vast expertise with my listeners. Thank you and your listeners for having me. This is exciting. Yeah. So let's just sort of dive right in. What is your sort of biggest passion in this area, in this field? Well, as you know, I have a PhD in developmental psychology, Mm -hmm. and I also sucked at dating. (laughs) (laughs) That's the stuff I want to hear about. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, uh, in other words, like many of your listeners, and perhaps like you, smart woman made some not so smart choices. wanted to find out if science knew anything about this because I am a scientist. I'm a social scientist. And so what I wanted to do, I didn't want to do the social science on dating and marriage and relationships, but I wanted to see if others had done that and I wanted to apply it to my own life. And so that's what I did. And it's resulted in a whole series of books, all of them called Love Factually with an F, all of them with blue covers. And so I think the one we're talking about today is love factually for single parents and those dating them. Basically, I was a single mom for a while and I wanted to know a lot of the information that we're going to cover on today's show. And I'm just really excited to share it with your listeners. I'm, by the way, happily remarried for uh, coming up on 12 years now. That's amazing. You give us all hope, Duena. <laughs> <laughs> it can happen. It can happen. It's out there. Um, So, all right. So let's just sort of dive into this. Like the prospect of divorce itself is fairly daunting. So a lot of my listeners are people who are in the deciding, should I stay or should I go? And obviously they're struggling with this because it's, I always talk about it as literally the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life at, you know, probably up to this point. Um, So what are some of the things that give people pause when they're considering this in your scientific expertise? Yeah, and it is huge. I remember when I was at that point in my life, and keep in mind when I was thinking about doing this, um, I already knew all the science on divorce. So I was well and thoroughly scared to do it. But for reasons we'll discuss later, there are some times when divorce really does need to happen. Mm-hmm. And I was in one of those circumstances. Um, basically, a lot of times people are afraid for their children's well-being. And that's that's reasonable. Um, research shows there, there was a scientist named Judith Wallerstein who did a 25-year long-term study on the same children from early childhood through early adulthood to find out how they adjusted to their parents' divorce. Mm-hmm. And what she found was not very heartening. Hmm. Basically, um, to paraphrase Dr. Wallerstein's words, we're not nuns and we're not saints. When we divorce, we still have human adult needs and we can't get all our emotional needs met through our children, nor should we. So what that translates to is we wind up in most of us a series of relationships. If we're women, we wind up with a lot of boyfriends. Mm -hmm. If we're men, we wind up with a lot of failed marriages. And so (laughs) this is not really ideal for the children either. It's not ideal Mm -hmm. for us and it's not ideal for them. And what she originally proposed to the National Institute of Health that um, she get funding for a one to three year study. And she was then funded every year for 25 years, I repeat. Because these children did not adjust. Uh, And one of the things that I always talk about, and I I just want to be careful in this, right? Because, you know, that what I talk about in my work a lot is that it's not the divorce itself that 
harm is harmful for children. It's how we do our divorces and also how we live our lives beyond our divorces, right? So what you're talking about, what I'm hearing, right, are parents who were involving their children in relationships in, in a revolving door of relationships, which is not, not healthy for children, right? It's not the divorce itself. It's not getting out of a marriage that was unhappy or toxic or something, right? It was actually the behavior that was subsequent to that. Right. Yes. A lot of people think that, and, and by the way, California was the first state to introduce no fault divorce, which was mm-hmm. quickly adopted across all across, 50 states. Right. And yeah. the idea at the time in the 1970s was, Hey, you know what? Adults will be happier apart. They can find newer, happier partnerships, and this is going to be successful for them. And what happened instead was to sum it up chaos. Judith Wallerstein herself said, and this is almost a direct quote. It's not that children can't get over one divorce. They probably could get over that. But in all my years of research, there was only one child out of the hundred who was called upon to get over just one divorce. Uh, All the rest went through a succession of friends, girlfriends, ex-partners, and new ex-partners. And it was the chaos that they could not get over. So you're absolutely right. Right. Um, There are ways to protect your child. That's a big part of the reason why I wrote Love Factually for Single Parents. Yeah, I I tried to do it differently. You've also had guests come on and talk about, well, what do you do with this toxic ex you've got that, um, you know, we were hoping the divorce would solve all this. And obviously, Mm -hmm. it didn't have to still relate to them because marriage may come and go, but parenting is forever. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Family now. So, uh, and, and I feel you on all that folks. <laughs> I've been yeah. there, done that. I'm still doing that. My son yeah. is now 17. He's about to go to college. And you know, the fact is we're parents forever. So I, I get that, but that's one of the reasons that people are justifiably afraid of divorcing. Keep in mind, I did divorce. There are right. ways to do this. Yes, absolutely. Um, but but too, that's you know? one reason. Yeah. Loneliness is another. We're all afraid of being lonely, I think. Yeah. Uh, men are normally more afraid of that than women are, though. Which is why they remarry so much more quickly than we do, which is why we might have boyfriends, but they have wives, right? They, men have a harder time being alone. That's part of it. Another part of it is that a lot of women who want to remarry um, they behave in such a way that they're more likely to be targeted by men who just want them for sex. Yeah. And that's another thing I talk about in my book is, you know, how do you avoid being treated that way? Um, mm, can you, can you, I know that's not really where we're, we're going, but I would love to hear some of your uh, thoughts on that and, and uh, expertise on that, because that is, that, have- needs, that really is a whole hour of conversation. <laughs> um, I will tell you that a lot of it revolves around learning how to set boundaries so that you are a priority and not an option. Yes. And for example, when I was dating um, as a single mom, one guy asked me if I would, you know, he said the words, so when we move in together Mm. and I stopped him right there and I said, you know, there's no need to go any further with that sentence. Mm. And he, he thought this was great because he was a lot wealthier than I was. He lived in a city I wanted to live in. He wanted to be able to see me much more frequently. He, uh, when I wouldn't move in with him, he actually offered me um, one of his rental properties. I could just move in. I wouldn't have to pay rent. Well, now I'm putting my child's stability on the line to do this. Yeah, am I not? Right. Right. It looks like a great deal to him, but I'm giving up everything. I'm giving right. up family that I've moved near, giving, you know, so sure. I, I set a boundary and I said that sentence was too long. Mm-hmm. Um, we will not be living together. I don't see why I would compromise my child's 
safety and security for a maybe. And mm-hmm. he, you should have seen his face. He looked completely stunned. And then he goes, oh, I get it. Yeah, good. You know what? He yeah. proposed. Huh. A couple months later. And I said, no, but that's a whole different. Right. Yes. Aspect. Exactly. But yes, I've yeah. got whole sections in my book that are about how is it that you don't yeah. get treated like. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, well, and. And it is all about how, what we tolerate and what we accept and what we, the little, the micro yeses along the way that, that keep us right. Sort of in the, like t- the little micro uh, ways in which we subjugate ourselves along the way that, you know, lead us directly down that path. It's that. And it's the fact that we're single moms. Uh, a lot of men take advantage of the fact that we're single moms to, to ask things of us that they would not have asked if we did not have children. They feel mm-hmm. they have a lot of leverage. So again, this kind of thing is, is in my book and not mm-hmm. really the topic today, but, um, but yeah, so people are afraid of, of being lonely. Women are afraid of financial loss. There's only one group of women that don't lose substantial amounts of money in a divorce and drum roll. The, those women are the ones who are divorcing alcoholics and addicts. Right. They actually do better financially after a divorce. Everyone else does worse. Mm. Um, so, yeah. you know, these are harsh realities. A lot of women need their the group health insurance that's provided. Maybe they worked part-time or, or like they worked at a job that didn't offer insurance because it was a really small company or something, and they're reliant on their ex's insurance. And maybe that ex then conveniently loses his job. So there's there's a lot of stuff people are afraid of. Well, you also can't stay on your on your you know, spouse's insurance after divorce, right? Like, yeah, you got to get Cobra. You got to get Cobra, which is way more expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, I mean, these are definitely, you know, reality. This is, this is, you know, these are realistic things that are, that are facing people. Yeah. My son was born with type one diabetes. I was terrified about what would happen to insurance. Yeah. Yeah, and I still left. So this yeah. may sound like an advertisement for stay no matter what, but it really isn't. We're, we're not. No, no, we're moving. We're moving to somewhere. Totally. Absolutely. And I'll say, you know, when, when, when I got divorced and I lost my insurance, my ex-husband, God love him, uh, paid my Cobra for six months. He was like, the mother of my child will not be uninsured. Mm-hmm. Period. That's, that's very honorable. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. He's, you know, he takes our, he takes our commitment, our life sort of lifetime union very mm-hmm. seriously. And that was one of the, that was like one of the most generous and kind gestures that he did throughout our divorce because, you know, he, he knew how expensive it was and he knew that that was just crazy. Yeah. Since we're talking about the uh, second and then third and fourth and fifth. <laughs> so the stats um, for second and subsequent marriages are far worse than for first marriages. Um, I've seen seven second marriages being set, uh, 68 or 67% depends on what, you know, what statistic you're looking at. And for third marriages, the divorce rate is ho- hovers between 73 and 74%, which is crazy. Um, so I know I have my opinions about why we get worse at marriage, not better, <laughs> um, that I've talked about a lot. Um, tell me what you, what, what are your Sure, there's a it? whole array of reasons. You know, very few effects in our life have just one cause. They're multi-causal. Sure. So, sure. Um, of course, kids are a big part of this. It turns out that the, the fail rate for second and subsequent marriages is higher, mainly for people who have children living in the home. 
And mm-hmm. if you think about that, that really makes a lot of sense. Consider that a lot of people Family divorce because they can't hard. agree on how to co-parent their biological kids. Now imagine that you've got a relative, you know, a stranger, someone who is not related to these children yeah. who decides they're going to help you. Maybe in ways that you find unhelpful right. or ways that your children rebel against. I've got a whole chapter in the mm-hmm. book called There's No Such Thing as a Blended Family that talks about how do you deal just with that issue. Um, there's extended family. You now have your ex, your ex's people, grandparents, mm-hmm. your new partner, yep. your new partner's people, possibly your new partner's kids, your kids, your people. It, it's it's not just baggage. It's a baggage train. Woo, woo, we're like going down the track. It just goes on forever. I have a I have a Venn diagram of holidays in divorce <laughs> when blended families about like all the different like members of the family that you have to try and coordinate holiday schedules with. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, it's not simple. You know, right? you think about the ideal circumstance, the only really easy quote unquote circumstance. And we all know that, that marriage takes work, by the way, being single does too. Any single mom will tell you this. Any single parent will tell you yep. this. Everything requires work. But when you were when you didn't have kids and you'd never been married before and you got together with, with your partner, you got to fall in love without the investment and involvement of many other people. Most of the time that's true. There Mm -hmm. are some subcultures where the whole family gets involved, but here in the United States, that's the exception, not the rule. And so what happens with Mm -hmm. the rest of us is we get this delightful honeymoon phase. Well, my husband now, um, he and I had a few weeks like that before we introduced our children to each other <laughs> and then we didn't. Yeah. And you know, I'm not to say it's not worth it. I really love him. Yesterday we called it the blues days. It, we had blue skies, blueberry picking and blues music. We had just this wonderful fun day. We went dancing at night, berry picking in the morning, lunch out. It was a wonderful day, but we have to work a lot harder to have that time than people do who don't have children. Wow. And then people who do, who you know, don't have the baggage train. So I think that's part of it. And there are just all these competing agendas. In my new book, I have an exercise where I ask people to actually write down a list of every person that has a stake in this relationship for or against it. Mm. Yeah, And then to write out what their perspective is on this new relationship. And what you yep. will see very quickly is the two of you want this to work, but there may or may not be other people who consciously or unconsciously really don't want it to work. And so mm-hmm. I talk about, okay, well, how do you make it work anyway? Because um, mm-hmm. I've been there and done that and there's science on it and it's, it's, and should you be listening to those, to those, it, that input, right? What, you know, why are they having mm-hmm. those feelings that they may Right. Because, you know, if, if they're invested in your failure, why are they invest? Are they invested in your failure because, you know, they're jealous or they have some right other stake in it? Or are they seeing something that you're right. not seeing? Right. Or someone that whose voice you should maybe trust. Right. Like, you know, my best friend who sat me down was like, please don't marry him. And I didn't listen to her. <laughs> she was, you know, she yeah. was right. I should not have done it. Right. I mean, I'm don't regret it. I have a wonderful kid and all of that. But like, you know, my ex and I both agree at this point. We're like, what, what, what did we, why would we do that? Yeah. So, so, you know, it's, so it's complicated yeah. is the summation yeah. of all this. It's complicated and it's much yes. more complicated. By the way, um, 
this is kind of interesting though, for African-Americans, second and subsequent marriages actually have a higher success rate. And I don't know why that is. Even with um, children, I, you know, yeah, even with kids, the second marriage rate is, is more successful. And I, wow. I don't know why that is. Huh. That is very interesting. I'd like yeah. to look into that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know okay. very much about that. I haven't seen very much on it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, one reason that was given is that the first marriage often happens so very young. And so it uh-huh. was really a, okay. a related to not kind of being who you were really going to turn into. Got it. So it wasn't so much that it's awesome after you have kids. It was that the the first marriage was just under circumstances that weren't likely to to work. Okay. So let's get let's sort of come back to the reasons, right? We said that it's super complicated. That there's never a, there's never just one reason. Um, so some so one of the reasons is family blending. As you say, there's no such thing as family blending, but family blending is hard. And, you know, we all may have this sort of like idealized pie in the sky idea of like what it's going to look like, like, you know, cause we were all raised on the Brady bunch or at least yeah. we were, <laughs> um, my audience, probably half my audience is like, what's that? <laughs> That's the most harmful TV um, show ever made for people who are trying to reconstitute new families. That's what that is. You can just skip it if you don't know what it is. <laughs> right. Just skip it. Just skip it. Um, so where were Carol and Mike's exes, by the way? I think they died. I mean... Had they both died? Yeah, I think so. Besides the fact that family blending is hard, uh, what are some of the other reasons that you that you find, that you see? A lot of times the kids don't want it to work. So it turns out there are better and worse times for remarriage. And don't stake your whole life on what I'm about to say. Keep in mind that statistics... Does everybody hear that? <laughs> don't stake your whole life on what I'm about to say. My own remarriage situation, my husband and I should have had a success rate of under 20%. And yet here we are coming up on 12 years. You don't have to become in line with the stats, but I will tell you what the stats show is it's easier to remarry before your kids are 10 and after they're 16, especially if you have a girl. Well, I'm doomed. <laughs> now, the, there's of course, I have a boy though. I have a boy though. Yeah. So. But there are reasons behind that even. Uh, A lot of times, kids who are age 10 and up, they now have a very firm map of the world of how life should be. That does not include some other adult coming into their house. Yeah. My son wants the adult. He's desperate for the adult. He's like, mom, I want a stepdad. Get me a stepdad. But he can't have kids. (laughs) That's his mandate because his father is remarried. And there are three, three of them over there, three kids over there. And at my house, there's just us and it's a nice respite. And he doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want more step, step and half kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's his mandate. Now I told him that he doesn't really get a say, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but I hear things easier because, you know, sometimes the stepkids like each other and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Well, right. Exactly. And I'll tell exactly. you, it is, it is hard to have a set of expectations with your child and then the the other kids have a totally different set of expectations but you're all spending time together. Yeah. If at your house your son comes home and does his homework right away before he gets any screen time and the your new spouse's children get to have a break after school every day and then do their yeah. homework, there's going to be hell hate and discontent about this. 
Absolutely. Well, and just a, a whole new parenting paradigm, right? This is like, this is what things that we have to work on and work through, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah. 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 That's, I've got a whole chapter just about that. And I would give, you. Know, I don't know what I would give to have had that chapter before I met Vic, because we each right. had a child and we really bot- botched it up. I mean, you know, this is one of those times when I should have read the science ahead of time. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I, did, I didn't read that. I just thought, oh, I'll just, I was Brady bunched out of my mind. I just, yeah. oh, it'll just work. No, not really. It'll be perfect. It'll be wonderful. Yeah. yeah. But you know what? The good news is after kids, especially after they're 15, 16 ish, most of them really want mom to have a new husband or a boyfriend. And the yeah. reason for that is they don't want you looking too closely at what they're doing. So they like, <laughs> yeah. Yes. But before that, they tend, especially girls, they tend to be threatened. The idea that uh, they're going to be displaced. Mom's going to be obsessive about somebody else. Um, We're not going to have our special alone time. And again, you know, there are behavioral workarounds here, like making sure you have special time just between the two of you, that you reassure your child or children that that's going to continue and that you really make it happen. Uh, But again, it's just, it's complex. Um, a lot of it comes down to, you know, what's your commitment level? If your commitment level is to your new spouse and to your children is completely firm, you can work through any adversity and you can work through mm-hmm. any time that you remarry. But uh, I do have people who ask me these questions at my website. They'll say, well, you know, what are the best ages or does gender of kids matter? And there are answers there. But again, I wouldn't make a decision based on that. Right. Exactly. I would be warned about it and then I would act accordingly. It's information that's important to have because, you know, to take to therapy or to write to, to take to your communication with your new spouse, not, not something that, like you said, to base your decision-making process on. Yeah. Now I have known people that realized, you know, your mileage may vary. I I want that to be clear here. Mm -hmm. Science is great, but it's based on aggregate data, meaning data from a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And you as an individual may differ. And if you do, you need to take what applies to you and leave the rest. So I knew a pair of professors, they met at a conference. They both had, he had one son, she had two daughters. Uh, All the kids were in their teens, right in the middle of the time when you, when there's, that's very, yeah. Shows it's not going to work. Yeah. And uh, they were both, by the way, psychologists. That's why I knew them. I worked, Mm -hmm. uh, I was a faculty member with one of Mm -hmm. them and uh, they agreed to let me share their story in my in my single parents book. And they said that um, they actually bought houses across the street from each other. So they could see each other every day and not blend families. They did not marry or live together until after all three children were launched because they knew these kids didn't like each other. Mm. They, they knew that it would put them at odds with each other. The adults at odds with each other, trying to defend their own children. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So um, so any other reasons that you think the stats are the way they are? I mean, there are tons of reasons, right? Oh, uh, there are probably a lot, but I, I really thought that, you know, maybe we would talk about, okay, so you realize, okay, it's really threatening leaving and yeah, second and later marriages have a higher fail rate, but yeah. you know, sometimes you've just got to go. And I think it's really important for people to be crystal clear about when that is. Okay, great. Let's do it. Yeah. So about two in three divorces that are happening right now per various uh, scientists, quote, shouldn't be happening. Interesting. Close quote. 
because those marriages are salvageable. And most of the time, if, if you've loved someone, you can love them again. Mm -hmm. If the problem is that you've fallen into a rut or you just don't feel like you love them anymore, that can usually be overcome. But I want to talk to you about the circumstances, the one third of circumstances where a divorce needs to happen. Yep. Great. I was in these circumstances and um, much as it hurt me, hard as it was on my son and still is on us in some ways, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It would have been much worse to stay. Sometimes as adults, we get shitty life choices and it's just the way it is. Yep. And so here are some of those, those circumstances. First of all, what I call the three A's, a chronic pattern of abuse, addiction, or adultery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're looking for a pattern here. If, if your spouse, uh, you know, slammed his, his hand through the drywall one time and then apologized and never did anything like that again. Okay, that was out of line. Yeah, that's not it wasn't a anger management, but it's not a pattern of using violence, the threat of violence, or destruction of property near you in order to control you, which is what abuse is. Yes, and I also, I also, I would add to that um, emotional abuse, which is not oh, any, any it's, which is not any of the things that you listed, right? So emotional abuse, which can be far subtler and far uh, less uh, concrete. Right. Because like, well, I don't know. He's never hit me. I hear that all the time. Well, he's never hit me. And then I hear and I, I do a lot of educating about, well, actually, that's abuse. Actually, what, yes. what you're talking uh, about. So the, the science definition of abuse is an ongoing systematic pattern of cruelty aimed at controlling you. Mm-hmm. Cruelty doesn't have to ever lay a hand on you or a physical object. No, and uh, studies of abused women show that they all rate so this is one of those times when, you know, it's virtually everyone agrees on this. If, if this happened to you, you would probably agree with this statement. Virtually all abused women say that the verbal cruelty is worse than the physical cruelty. Yes. And so it's not, you know, when people say, well, it was just verbal abuse, remove the just out of that yep. sentence. Verbal abuse is horrifying and I don't want anyone sticking around for it. What, what you're looking for again is a pattern. Somebody can say something out of line once, which you say, you know what, I, I never intend to, to put up with that behavior. And if your spouse apologizes and never does it again, fine. Right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw everyone's fortunes to the wind over that. But if you're looking at a pattern of addiction, adultery, or any kind of abuse, you're looking at a time when you're really better off going. There are certain personalities that if they're not reined in, if they're not tempered, if the person won't go to therapy and can't change, it's not going to work. You have interviewed people about this. I know you yourself have been through this uh, because I've listened to your podcast before, Kate. Thank you. (laughs) A big one of these is pathological narcissism. Ding, 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 ding. ding, ding. That's right. If your partner lacks empathy for others, you, your kids, animals, other people, if they need excessive attention at the expense of other people, if they have to have more status and special treatment compared to other people, if they take advantage of other people, including you, um, these are all signs that you're with a pathological narcissist Mm -hmm. and that's never working. If they exploit you for their own gain, that's never working. If they are a sociopath, look it up. That's never working. If they have borderline personality disorder, that's never, it's not going to work. And, you know, there's even an argument right now among scientists in psychology about whether the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is now in its fifth edition, whether it should include 
narcissism. And here's why. Mm-hmm. The idea behind the manual that, that therapists and doctors use to determine psych disorders right. is that those disorders can be treated. Oh, interesting. Narcissists can't be can't treated. Be treated. Well, and many, per, I mean, many personality disorders can't, can't personality disorders can't be treated. They're not. There is now an effective dis, uh, therapy for borderline, which was considered totally untreatable until about 15 years ago. Uh, there's a lot more hope for that now. And again, it's beyond the scope to go into all the whys and wherefores, but I encourage people to look it up. It's called dialectic behavior behavior therapy or DBT. Right. And, you know, if you have a partner who's got borderline personality disorder and they go to DBT and it starts getting better, fine. But what I'm saying is, but it would take something to be a person with borderline being willing to seek treatment. Like that's, that's a stretch right there. Yeah. Right. Because part of the personality profile of someone with borderline is that they're not going to seek treatment because there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes it has to be about something else. You know, you, you find them a DBT, but you don't use the words borderline. Right. Um, I've seen people do that before with some success. So um, you want to look also at the state of your relationship. For example, let's say that your relationship's just kind of constantly unhappy and you don't meet any of the standards I just talked about. But the truth is you don't have any kind of shared vision of the future. Mm-hmm. And nobody has any motivation to make things better. Yep. Or one or one or both people don't, right? Because I have a lot yeah. of love work with a lot of women who are like, I want to go to therapy. Let's try this. And the husbands are like, no. I'm, you know, you knew who I was when I when you married me, and this is who I am. And, you know, so it has to be both parties that need that. It doesn't have to be. This is an interesting thing that science has found is that one person can usually unless you're with an addict, a serial adulterer, or an abuser. The three A's are exceptions to this statement. Yeah, okay. I take a megaphone right. and yell that to the yeah. world. Yeah, okay, because I was like, because ah, I was doing all this work, but I was also, no, 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 yeah. No, no, no. If you're with somebody who's doing the three A's, if you're with someone with personality disorder, yeah. this is not going to work. Right. If you're with a normal person where you just lost that love and feeling, oh, sure. yeah, you're absolutely. being unkind and disrespectful to each other, yeah. uh, or one of you is... In those cases, one person can change the dynamic of the relationship simply by changing themselves and how they approach it very often. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you, the stat right now on how long people wait to go to counseling when they're unhappy is six years. Oh my God. Yeah. And by that point- By the time six years have passed, these behavior patterns are so entrenched that a lot of times people no longer have the motivation to do what it really takes. What I'm saying is- if you're listening to this and you're just now starting to think about divorce, you haven't done it. You don't know if you're going to do it. You're just now start get thyself to Gottman method couples therapy. Yeah. That is the kind that science shows is effective. Yep. Or get yourself to EFT emotion focused therapy. Mm-hmm. Do a Google search on therapists who offer one or both of those types of counseling and do it Good. because by the time you're thinking about divorce, you've been unhappy for a long, long mm-hmm. time. And yep. you need someone with research proven skills and techniques to help you figure it out. And you know what? If you figure out 
this isn't going to work. We don't care enough, whatever. If you find that out, that's better than wondering. I want, I want people who leave their marriages to know that they did everything they could to make sure that this was the best decision. I do too. 150% agree with you. And about the Gottman and EFT. Yes. I've yeah. Back. And you also want to evaluate the severity of the damage. Like um, most of the time, if you're considering divorce, there have been there's either been one huge betrayal, like an affair, or there have been uh, a series of betrayals in that in that relationship. Maybe there's been a series of affairs. Maybe there's been, um, for example, one of my very best friends um, from a long time ago. I knew her and her husband since we were all very young adults. And he seemed like the ideal husband. One day she was logging onto their computer and she saw evidence that he had had an affair. So she confronted him with the evidence and he did not only, not only did he cop to it, he then unburdened himself of over a hundred sexual liaisons that he had had. Which while married. Which she just didn't need. She didn't need that information. That To me, that's like, oh, so he's unburdened, and now she, the burden is squarely on her shoulders, right? I, yeah, and, yeah. And, and uh, you know, basically, that was so severe that she was done with the marriage right there. Of course she was. Yeah. yeah she, was just, she was just done. Now, did he have a sex addiction? I don't know. I, I had not spoken to him in many years at that point. I don't know what his deal was. There are people who acknowledge a sex addiction. Mm-hmm. They, go to, they go to therapy. They unburden themselves. They go to therapy. They go to groups. Their spouses stick by them. But I understand that she did not care to delve into that. She was done. Yeah. You know, when you look at the pattern, the severity, and the state of the relationship, plus these factors of personality disorders and whether it falls in line with the three A's, you'll have a pretty good picture of whether you really need to stay or go. In my case, I was married to somebody who I absolutely adored, who was a very nice human being um, and was all that in a bag of chips, except that he was super addicted to numerous substances, had been hiding it for years. And then we had a diabetic baby and he wanted to give the baby insulin, which when you only weigh 23 pounds, a little too much insulin can kill you. Right. So I, for safety reasons to protect my only child, um, I actually uh, left Mm. and uh, made a new life with a new profession actually at the time. Cause I, in order to leave, he was a little too functional to stay in town. I actually moved back several States away from where my professorship was and just gave up my professorship mm. to protect my child. And um, that was all very painful, but notice that I'm speaking about it just like, Oh, and I went to the blueberry thing yesterday. I, the time will come. I hope everybody listening really feels a lot of hope from this story instead of uh, devastation and depression because the time will come when you can't quite remember how long ago that was or how terrible it felt, or you have to really think in order to remember it that a better time is coming. Yeah, it really is coming. And so, you know, take all these things into account, but if you do need to leave, keep in mind that yes, it's going to be awful for a while, but it can get much, much better. And, um, my life lives of my clients, I'm sure the lives of your clients are living proof. Yep. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, so let's talk about, is there anything else that you think that, um, they need to know about the decision-making process? I think that, that making the decision, first of all, I think that you are your own 
wise counselor. Mm -hmm. Nobody is living your life, but you. And if you've heard what I said and you think this is true for me, Mm -hmm. then you are in the best position to determine your timing and your exit strategy. Especially if with if you're with an abuser, you need to be very careful. But don't listen to the people who are saying, get out right now today. Look, there are certain kinds of abusers for up to two years after you leave them. Right. So I'm not going to tell you, you know, what to do or how to do this, but I am going to say, trust yourself. And if you are in an abuse situation, trust the National Domestic Violence yeah. Hotline. Yes. Call them, text them. They have both phone numbers and text numbers and help they will help you make a plan so you get out safely uh i i i think we should trust women a lot more than we do in a lot of ways in our country well and society yes and you know a lot of a lot of the work that i do with women is getting them to trust themselves because we we don't trust women in our culture and in our society they don't women don't trust themselves so they're constant they're so agonized about this decision and when i really hear the details of their stories it's, it's a no brainer, right? It's, it's, it's an absolute no brainer. And yet they're agonizing and agonizing over it because we haven't given women permission to trust themselves. We haven't. And then additionally, if they were with a verbal abuser, they have been told that they're not trustworthy. Right. They're self and they've been told, you know, I mean, they've been called lots of names and, you know, over time, no matter, you know, that little taunt that kids say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They do. They do. They absolutely hurt a lot and they undermine our self-esteem and over time, they undermine our faith in ourselves. So this is why I'm saying the design of it, by the way, right? That is the design of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's intended to keep you under the abuser's power. Right. Exactly. So I guess what I'm saying is if needed, reclaim your power, trust yourself. You can trust yourself. You can love yourself. You really can. You can do these things. I actually have a whole chapter in my book on, for single parents, that's just about this emotional recovery. Yeah. A couple chapters actually. And how is it that you, you heal and you trust yourself and you move forward? Right. Yep. Which I think we want to talk about some forgiveness, maybe. We do. <laughs> so this is something that you write about and I want to hear your take on it. Cause it's, uh, it's a little, it's a little different from what everybody, uh, what other people are talking about. Right. Yeah. Um, so I want to preface this by thanking you for letting me talk about forgiveness mm-hmm. and asking your listeners to do, please do not switch off because <laughs> not what you got told in your religious upbringing. Yeah. Um, there's a science of forgiveness of exactly what it is and what it is not. And over the years that I taught university for 20 years mm-hmm. before my child was sick and I left California. And then when I got reestablished, I eventually resumed to being a resume being a professor. What we're about to talk about is the only topic that I've ever discussed where routinely after discussing it in class, I would get letters, long letters from students in the class saying it had transformed their lives and they felt free for the first time sometimes since they were little children. Amazing. So I want to start by saying, here's what science and what my own studies with my students have shown forgiveness, why people don't want to forgive. Mm -hmm. People don't want to forgive because they think forgiveness is the following things. Like when I ask my students, why won't you forgive someone? What is it that you think you would have to do that that you don't want to do? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, People think that forgiveness means saying it's no big deal. 
it's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have to forgive someone for cutting us off on the freeway. We get mad for a second, then we, we let that go. If you're still thinking about something, you know, hours, days, weeks, months, years later, the whole reason we're discussing forgiveness is it's a big offense. Right. So you don't have to do that in order to forgive. You do not have to say it was no big deal. Mm -hmm. Another um, barrier to forgiveness is the idea that um, if I forgive this person, they're just going to come back and do it again. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, women are taught in a lot of religions, especially women are taught again, not to trust themselves, but instead they're taught that forgiveness means that you forgive and you forget and you let that person back in your life and they can do whatever they want to you and you just have to forgive them again. Turn the other cheek 70 times seven or whatever it is. That is not what forgiveness means. Mm -hmm. Scientifically, forgiveness is not about losing your sense of self and your sense of boundaries. You can forgive and you can have effective boundaries. And I want to talk about boundaries here in a minute. Um, forgiveness, a lot of people resist forgiving because the other person has done something so bad that they just don't deserve forgiveness. Again, science agrees with you. You're absolutely right. Um, the other person very well may not deserve forgiveness. They, they don't deserve it. Here's the thing though. Forgiveness isn't about them. It's about you. Mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, it was one of the Roosevelt's who, who said, um, not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Right. Yep. The reason to forgive, and by forgiveness, I, I should start with the definition. I'm just now getting around to it. But mm-hmm. forgiveness per science is letting go of your anger, hurt, and vengefulness. That's it. That's all it is. It is not letting the other person come back and do it again. It is not telling the other person. You don't ever have to tell them. Right. Yeah. They can go through life wondering if you forgave. This isn't about them. Therefore, you need not involve them. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't mean saying no big deal. It doesn't mean opening yourself or your children up and being vulnerable to this person. Again, it doesn't mean any of that. It simply means letting go of your anger and your hurt and your vengefulness because it's, you know, when somebody hurts us, it's only natural that we want to hurt them back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a natural right. human thing, right? But letting go of that is going to set you free. So, okay. Well, I told you to forgive. So how do you do that? There are three steps. Okay. Step one is for 18 months after the offense, don't even try. Mm. Don't even try. This is, if this is your ex and you're just now getting through this, don't, you know what? Just let yourself feel all the feelings for yeah. a good 18 months. Yeah. As research shows, it, you can take all these steps and it doesn't help at all for 18 months. Mm-hmm. So you know what? Your anger probably will actually help you to get through the divorce. Yeah. Go with it. Yeah. Good. Allow it. Allow it. Feel it. Rage it. Do all of the things, right? Do all the things. Just don't involve your kids. Right. And, and maybe not even the other person, right? I mean, yeah. right. Maybe not, yeah. It just Write angry letters that you don't send, go to a rage room, smash shit. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, again, don't involve them because that makes it worse. Yep. But process your own feelings yep. for 18 months. Don't even try to make it okay with them. Right. Good. From your own, in your own heart. Mm-hmm. But during those 18 months, here's what you do. You set, start setting some boundaries. Mm-hmm. Decide where the rubber meets the road for you as far as how you will be treated and make a deal with yourself, not with the other person, make a deal with yourself on what you will do when they cross these lines. Yes. Because boundaries, I've said it a hundred times and I'm going to repeat it again. Boundaries are yours, not the other person's. That's right. You never discuss them. No, 
you don't tell the person I, well, I mean, you can, right. But it, but they're going to break them and it's your job to reinforce them. And it's your job to reset them. And it's your job to maintain them and to manage them and all of that. Yeah. And I've never yet heard of anybody who, when presented with a boundary leveled against them said, oh, thank you for telling me that. I won't do it now. I mean, there's really no need for conversation here. Uh, There's a form of learning called operant conditioning. And scientists have known about this uh, since the early part of mid part of the 1900s now. And with, with operant conditioning, what happens, this is how Shamu is trained. This is how dogs are trained. Mm. Um, and it's how people are trained too. We just don't like to think of ourselves as animals or as as uh, manipulators or manipulated. But this is how it's it's a dominant form of learning, and it's all unconscious. What happens is we go through the world behaving, and then some of those behaviors get rewarded, mm-hmm. and others meet with the neutral response, and others meet with a punishment. And the behaviors that meet with a rewarded response tend to be repeated. Yes. So if your ex sends you a nasty letter to get your attention and it gets them attention, they're more likely to send you more nasty grams in the future. Mm-hmm. Yep. Somebody who, who, you know, if your ex texts you 100 times and you respond on the 100th try, what they learn is they have to reach out 100 times before they get a response. Yep. yep. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is we are constantly training one another. It's just that most of this training is unconscious. Yep. I had a dog that trained me to get up before I wanted to. And, you know, I mean, this is a dog training me. And I'm sure the dog didn't have a conscious plan to train me. My dogs have trained me within an inch of my life. (laughs) That's what they do, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So so when you set boundaries, what that looks looks like is you decide which behaviors are not acceptable to you. And you determine what you are going to do in response to those behaviors. And the most effective thing you can do is to make yourself scarce when those behaviors occur. This is the single most effective thing you can do. So for example, real life example, um, my ex and I still talk because we have a child and you know our marriage came and went, but parenthood is forever. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes when he calls, he is drunk. Mm. And because he has an addiction, which I do not blame him for, but which I do not care to interact with. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, I say to him, let's talk later. And if he tries to keep talking, I say, I can't talk right now, but let's talk later. And then when he, if he reaches out and he's sober, I give him a lot more attention. Mm -hmm. People, you know, Shamu will work for fish and people will work for attention. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people fish for attention. Make sure that when you give attention, it's for the things that you want. Yes. Yes. Okay. So sometimes he says things to me like, you know, you broke our marriage vows because you divorced me and you said we would always be together. I do not dignify that with a response. Yes. I do not go into the years of, of his addictions and the cost it could have had for our child and, and, and. I simply say, you know, we, we were talking about Griffin's tuition next year. Can we get back to talking about that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what's interesting is when I first started this project, which being divorced is its own project. When I first started this project, he wouldn't simmer down. He would just keep at it. And I would say then, it sounds like we're both getting upset. Let's talk when things have calmed down. And I would just then gently hang up. Mm. 
Now, when I say these kinds of things, he instantly, because he's been trained. Right, right. Mm -hmm. He instantly says, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Let's talk about tuition or whatever it is. Right. Yep. Now, we've been divorced a long time, but again, I'm hoping this gives listeners some sense of hope because things can improve. Yep. Even if you're dealing with somebody who, because of an addiction or a personality disorder or what have you, maybe they're not terribly rational. Maybe sometimes they're not kind and, and polite. What you decide is, I'm only dealing with a person who's rational, kind, and polite. And if they're anything other than that, I'm going to make myself scarce until they are again. And as soon as they cross the boundary again, I'm going to make myself scarce until they behave the way that I should be treated. Yep, absolutely. My book actually has a lot of uh, exercises around that task because people find it really difficult. My first book, which is Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps for My Wish to I Do, that one's out in five languages now, and it's done a lot better. Of course, it's a lot older than my second mm-hmm. book. My second one just came out, um, the single parents book. But I realized when I was doing the single parents book that I'm going to have to have a lot more exercises in this because these mm-hmm. concepts require application. Yeah. And you know, the sad thing is life is going to give you a lot of opportunities for application. Right, 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 right. And then the third thing is how, how do you forgive? Okay, um, so you've, you've gone through 18 months. You've used that time to set some boundaries. You've got consequently, maybe not a great relationship with your ex, but you've got a relationship where the only times that you deal with this person, they're behaving reasonably with you and kindly and respectfully. And otherwise you just don't deal with them at all. The The final task is actually forgiving. Hmm. And I put this last, both because it's naturally last and because this is the thing that m- most people find the hardest to swallow. Yeah. You've got to empathize with this person. Mm-hmm. No, you know, and I, I'm going to show you how that looks for me. Okay. And I'm going to, and then I'm going to show you how it looks for me. <laughs> well, give an example of, of yeah. what empathy looks like. Yeah. Okay. So as you know, I'm, I'm divorced from somebody with really serious addiction mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. So when I think about him and I don't actually get mad anymore, but I used to get very angry mm-hmm. because, you know, our divorce cost us, cost me a lot. Mm-hmm. I gave up my animals, my house, my, my career, not just my job. Um, my friends, lots of things. I moved somewhere else, gave up a lot of money, and, and, and. So I wrote him a, a letter. And by the way, research shows you can write a letter or you can do what's called the empty chair. Mm-hmm. You're not going to send this letter. You're not actually going to say this to your former partner. The empathy is not so that you tell them that what they did was okay. The empathy is so that you see something very important, which we'll discuss in just a sec. Okay, when, when my ex was a little boy, his parents were told that he had epilepsy. Mm. And they were told they had to put him on barbiturates. Mm. They put him on barbiturates from the age of 5 to 15, whereupon a doctor took him off cold turkey. Oof, good God. He then started substance seeking. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Right, of course. His brain had developed into the brain of somebody who has addictions. Mm-hmm. Back then, people did not understand. They thought this was a personal problem. His parents looked the other way. They were very sweet, loving people, but they did not know what to do. People thought that addictions were a personality problem or that they were uh, a moral failing. They didn't understand that a lot of times this is biologically mediated. Um, he got blamed for, his, for these problems. He got isolated. He dropped out of college. He wound up succeeding brilliantly in graduate school, but you know the fact is he never stopped substance switching. He just got really good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. All the while, he was terrified that he would be discovered. He would lose everything he valued. 
And that is exactly what has happened to him. Mm-hmm. I have gone on to have the best career of my life, to have a terrific marriage, to have a thriving child, to have lots and lots of friends, to live exactly where I want to live. And his life is hell. Yeah. He has paid a price that I would not wish on my, on my worst enemy, never mind the, the father of my child. Yep. I feel a lot of empathy for him. Now, at the end of that, what I've realized is, and this is the realization people have when they practice this. I'm not saying what he did wasn't a big deal. It was huge. Mm-hmm. It still is. There are still things he does that are huge. What I'm saying is I understand that none of this was about me. Yep. He's suffering and it was never about me. Yeah. And that has allowed me to completely release my anger, my vengefulness, and my hurt. Mm-hmm. I don't feel much of anything about him except sympathy now. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your story? Well, I mean, it's, you know, what I talk about too is that, you know, that I, and I think it's very similar, right? You can have deep compassion for your, you know, for my ex-husband, there was a lot of, you know, childhood wounding and trauma and stuff like that, that had him be emotionally abusive towards me. Um, and I can have great compassion for that trauma and what, I, but what kept me in my marriage as long as it did was that my compassion for him and his trauma was overriding my self-esteem and my self-worth. So, you know, but you can actually have both. So, you know, what I say is that you can have as much compassion for their wounding for the, I mean, what you just described about your ex-husband and being put on barbiturates at the age of five, like that's horrible, right? Your heart breaks for that child and for being sort of, you know, scientifically experimented on. And he's still an an addict that you can no longer be married to. And both things can be true. My ex-husband, I can have great compassion for the traumas that he underwent as a child and also choose to no no longer be married to him, right? So, which, which is, I think, exactly what you're talking about, about forgiveness does not invite a repetition of the behavior. That, that compassion and that empathy does not invite yourself to become, to become a willing victim of it you can have compassion and then have a boundary that is absolutely i no longer i no longer stand to be a victim of this exactly exactly i understand why you did what you did and please come back and do it again are very different things very different i would not be remarried to him right i will always have compassion for him yep absolutely i feel exactly the same way and you know that is what allows me to have the relationship that i have with him now that I have forgiven him for our marriage that, that, you know, for the way that he treated me, you know, for a, a number of other things, but we are able to have a wonderful co-parenting relationship in divorce because of that. And a lot of people would have said you couldn't, but you do right. because you've implemented um, a lot of the techniques actually that are, that are in my book. You've mm-hmm. clearly that's, you've done the work. Yes, absolutely. And uh, this have. is another example of how you, one person changing the way they do things can change the dynamic of an entire relationship Yeah, mm-hmm. because he wasn't going to do that. He's not equipped to lead your co-parenting relationship. You were equipped to do that. The same is true in mine. And I've chosen to do that for my own well-being. Does it benefit my ex? Well, I'm sure not having one more person who's constantly angry at him does benefit him. Sure. 
I'm not going to withhold that just because it benefits him. I'm going to benefit myself and my child. And if it benefits my ex, I now have enough compassion to be okay with that. I don't need to make my life about making his miserable. Frankly, if you've divorced someone that fits the list of, uh, of problems that I just went over or that we covered earlier in the talk today, they're already suffering. Yeah. People who are doing these things, they do not feel good. Exactly. There's so much shame. There's, I mean, shame, I think is the, is the, the top feeling that they're, you know, that's, that's constant with them. There's shame, there's guilt, there's, there's so much underneath everything else. They are suffering. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Well, Duena, thank you so much. I mean, this is just such a wealth of wisdom and information. And I highly recommend that everybody gets your book because I think this is uh, clearly very rich and um, uh, deep exploration. That's, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a geek for science. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm all about the science. So um, thank you so much. Why I love you. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners today? I do. And I'm going to sum up more than 60 years of excellent science in just one statement. Mm. If you can find and be someone kind and respectful, your love life will go well. And if you can't, it won't. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Duena. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. You can find me over at kateanthony.com and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.